Welcome to Conversations. I'm John Bradshaw and my guest is Juliet van Heerden. She is an author, a public speaker and a teacher. And this is our conversation. Juliet, thanks for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. Hey, let's go back to about where you think the beginning is. Where does your story, it's a fascinating story, it's a moving story, a very powerful story, and a story that's going to impact a lot of lives as you share it. So where does this story begin? Well, I grew up in a Christian um, family, Christian home. My mom was a very um, devout Christian woman, but I am the product of divorce. And my parents divorced when I was four. And then when I was 14, um, there was another divorce. And so I was a child who experienced the feelings of abandonment and the idea that happily ever after doesn't always turn out that way. And I made a vow to myself as a child that I would never get divorced. And I didn't want that legacy. And that was a promise that I made to myself and really ended up trying very hard to keep. Let me ask you this. Do you feel now that growing up in two divorced homes, that that had any bearing on some of the decisions you made that now you regret making? Did that play into that at all? Of course. Of course. Um, I, I, I was a person who likes order and structure and routine and stability. And when you suffer divorce, whether as a child or an adult, your structure and your routine and your stability just gets all messed up. And so um, I think it, it caused me to want to always create, um, to control my environment, to control my world and create this I'll say perfect world that didn't have the chaos that um, I had experienced as a child. So it definitely did affect me. So raised in a home where the Bible was important, yes. faith in God was important, yes, prayer was important, and all of those things were mm -hmm. normal to mm -hmm. you and they became a part of your life. Yes. Christian college? Uh, Christian education my whole life. Okay. And did you, that was a good positive experience? Yes. Yeah. No regrets about that? No, I, I wanted to be a teacher. I loved school. I enjoyed Christian, my Christian school. I, I, learned, um, I learned a lot about the Bible and about God. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned that you were the bridesmaid several times and that you may have, well, you may have made a decision that later on you regret. So walk, walk through that dynamic with me. You got married along the way. Um, if this was a decision that later on you might have wanted to do over, tell me how that, how that came to be. Tell me about this, the circumstances around your marriage. Okay, well, I, um, I ended up making a decision to marry a person that I probably would not have consciously chosen, but sometimes as a young person will make a compromise. And I tell young people when I speak to them, be careful who you date, be careful who you go on one date with, because that person might end up being the person you spend the rest of your life with. And so I became friends and involved with a person that I probably wouldn't 
have initially chosen, but because you end up getting your heartstrings pulled a certain direction and you make make commitments and and you feel pressure. Well, I, I won't say you, I'll say me. I felt the pressure around me of my friends getting married and my, my little timeline that I had made as a kid wasn't, it wasn't working out because if I was going to have all these kids, then I needed to, you know, go ahead and, and find a husband and get going. But um, I, I rushed things and I did not do my homework. And I tell my students, do your homework, but I didn't do mine. And I did not even know what questions to ask a potential spouse. I didn't, um, I just didn't research. I took everything at face value. I was a very trusting person. Okay, let's go through some of these things. What questions, okay. what questions should a person ask? Well, I would definitely um, recommend asking, have you, uh, what is your experience with substance abuse, with alcohol and drugs? What is your experience with, with pornography? What longstanding friendships do you have? Uh, maybe even wanting to meet those friends and hang out with people that um, have been in this person's life for a long time. Um, what else would I ask? Uh, sexual history. Really, we say yes and I do to somebody that we really don't know if they haven't been transparent with us. And sometimes people like to keep the skeletons in their closet. I remember saying to my fiancé, check me out, do your homework, go and talk to the people who make up the fabric of my life. That's right. I was scared to death when she actually did. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing oh, she did that good. and then said I do was one of the biggest surprises of my life. But So that's the sort of thing you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? Accountability. Yeah. So how do you marry someone without really knowing them? You did. Yes. How, how, did you, how did you go through that? How did you make what you now consider... A mistake is a strong word, but how do you make that mistake? And the reason I'm asking you is because I want you to help somebody else who maybe is standing in that place now to not make that mistake. How is it possible? Right. Well, I mean, you get caught up in the moment. You, be you believe a person. You take, you take what you see at this moment, and you don't realize that there's something behind what you see. So, I mean, I just felt... I felt excited that someone was interested in me, that they um, enjoyed some of the same things that I enjoyed. Yes, we had a little bit different um, background, but I was an optimist. I thought that whatever wasn't just right, I could make right. And um, I recently heard a sermon where uh, someone said, women need, need to not think of men as projects, and men need to not think of women as possessions. And um, I think I, I like a project, and so that might have been part of it, um, a challenge that you, know, you, can, you can change a person. So in your experience, you discovered you can't change a person. No. Did you try? Oh, yes. How did you try? Uh, I, I tried to... Um, I manipulated. I, I tried to control the person. I tried to um, force them into my mold. And you can't take a person who is who they are and try to make them someone that you want them to be. But when I realized things weren't exactly um, happily ever after for me, I, I was really trying very hard to make this person fit into, into what I thought was the mold for a good Christian husband. Let me ask you about this. 
because no one is ever married to the perfect person. No. So you've got to accept some imperfections, some limitations, right? Of course. In a person. But there are some things you should never accept and think that you're going to be able to change. How do we know where that line is? How do we know what it's, you know, he, she isn't everything he or she might be in this area, but that's okay. In other areas, it's not okay. Help us navigate that. Well, knowing ourselves is important. You know, knowing knowing what I can live with and what I what I can't, because no one's perfect. I mean, I wasn't a perfect um, spouse or a perfect person either, and I didn't. Um, I really just I wasn't sure what to do with the things that I saw that weren't right. But I think honesty is like a core <laughs> foundational uh, piece. If if we have a question about a person's integrity or about their honesty, or if we catch them in a lie or something like that, then we really need to not brush. I would say that to any woman, don't brush that under the rug. Really have your radar up. If you get that feeling like something's fishy, something's not right, follow through with that. Don't ignore that. Because if we are, if we are dealing with a person who's not honest, then we're going to have serious problems. Now, if you detect dishonesty before you walk down the aisle. Run. If you detect it after you walk down the aisle, what do we do then? <laughs> Pray. <laughs> it's, it, I experienced it. I experienced it shortly after I walked down the aisle. Um, I, was, I was able to catch the person in the lie. And it was devastating. And I really didn't know what to do. I wanted to undo what I had done, but remember the vow that I made to myself. I'm never going to get divorced. So what do I do? Well, then you kick into this, I can change this person. I can fix this person. Uh, and your prayers become all about God change this person. And you forget that you're also a broken person in need of a savior. And a lot of times, I would say women especially, but not just women, we try to be the savior for somebody else, and it doesn't work. They already have a savior, but it's not us. You say the thing to do is to pray. Yes. But I'm certain you would advocate some other concrete steps. Who do you talk to? I know it, I know it will depend on what your spouse is involved in. What's doing. going on, of course. But, but who are the type of people you can turn to when you're in a marriage and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, this is not what I signed up for? No, I would definitely find a trusted um, friend, counselor. Um, I advocate for recovery groups and a support system where, where we can be transparent about what's really going on and not gossiping, I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about sharing and getting insight because when we're caught up emotionally in, in something that's bigger than we are, sometimes we don't think clearly. And my situation um, caused me to be in denial and I, I wasn't accountable to anyone initially in, in my early years of, of my first marriage. And I just, um, I, I wish that I had been, if I had been honest and transparent and listened to godly counsel, I might've made some different decisions, but I just walled up and kept everything 
close to me. Can you explain that? Can you, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? I don't want to take you into any uncomfortable place. What do you mean? But, but for somebody who you said you weren't transparent and you didn't listen to godly counsel, mm-hmm. give me an example of that. Okay, well, some, there were people in my life that I did trust, and they did ask me some questions um, before I actually walked down the aisle, but I didn't listen. You know, they, they did try, but I, I was just um, stubborn, I think, and wanting what I wanted. And so I didn't take into account that God places, I believe God places people in our lives to hold us accountable. And the Bible speaks of seeking godly counsel. And sometimes, especially if we're caught up emotionally in an emotional relationship or riding an emotional high, we're not thinking clearly. And that's where the people that we know that we can trust around us, that's where they come in and, and we can listen to them. But I didn't listen before the marriage. And then after, I realized I had really... I should have listened. Then I felt ashamed and I felt embarrassed and I didn't want to tell. Um, I didn't want to admit, you know, even to myself, I really didn't want to admit that I, I had messed up. And then I certainly didn't want to go back to my, my people who had, who had tried to warn me and, and, and admit. So I just, my, my pride just kept my mouth closed. If you had a chance to talk to the pre-first marriage <laughs> Juliet and you took her by the hands and pulled her aside, what would you say to her? I would say, I love you and care about you, and I know you. And in my heart of hearts, I feel that this is not a good decision, and here's why. And I would, I would specifically name the things that I saw, not in, a, in an unkind way. The Bible speaks of speaking the truth in love. And sometimes, you know, especially if someone comes hard at the person we love, we get defensive. And so um, approaching a person softly and saying, because I love and care about you, and I understand you love and care about this person, but these are some things I see in this person's character, or this is something I know about you, you're acting out of character, and maybe just take some time and wait. It's not going anywhere. If If it's really what it's supposed to be, don't rush it. I'm thinking of you listening to you yes, and hearing you tell yourself, this guy's not the right guy. Right. And I'm imagining you listening and thinking the things you're saying are true. But what am I going to do mm-hmm. if I walk away from this? Mm-hmm. So realizing that this is wrong that's uncomfortable, but that may not be as difficult as knowing, what do I do now? How do you advise a young woman, a young man, who's staring the rest of his or her life in the face and now realizing, "Uh uh-oh, how do they go about extricating themselves from that? I don't know what I would have done if I discovered that my wife was the Wicked Witch of the East or my fiancé was the Wicked Witch of the East. What would, I, what would I do? Where would I go? How would I go about rebuilding my life? What would you say to that person? I, I would suggest taking some time, like some remove yourself physically from the person for, for some time, taking some time alone with God, taking some reflection time, and, and seeking even professional help 
or professional counseling. Sometimes people are afraid of hearing the word counselor, but just really um, taking a break from the intensity, the emotional intensity of what's going on. And sometimes if things are wrong, um, it's more intense. There will be pressure from a person to make a quick decision. Let's just do this. You know, that's when you need to raise your eyebrow and go, wait a second. We don't need to rush this thing. But allowing yourself to have some, some space and some time away, if it's really a solid thing and a good thing, it will still be there. But give yourself a moment to breathe to pray, to listen to people you trust, and, um, and come back and say, is this, is this true or is this emotion I'm writing? In just a moment, when we come back, I want to I walk with you through your experience, your experience that led to divorce, what went wrong, what might you've done better, and uh, in doing so, your story is going to be a help and a blessing to many other people. We'll be right back with my conversation with Juliet van Heeren in just a moment. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV for the first time. They're watching their favorite It Is Written episodes, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free on Roku and Apple TV or visit itiswritten.tv. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line upon line from It Is Written TV. It's one of the great stories of the Bible, a shepherd boy against a giant. It's a story that speaks to your story. Human beings weakened by years of sin up against an enemy with years of experience in sin. I'm John Bradshaw. Join me on location in Israel for David and Goliath. We'll go to the Valley of Elah where the conflict between Judah and the Philistines took place. We'll visit the stream where David selected five stones and see the hillsides on which Israel and the Philistines camped. The Bible comes alive in David and Goliath. Faith in the face of darkness faith in the midst of faithlessness and failure, and reliance upon God when all other hope is gone. David and Goliath, filmed on location in Israel. Hope in the midst of trials, the power of a mighty God. Deliverance when deliverance is needed. Don't miss David and Goliath, brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Juliet van Heeren. She's a public speaker and an author and a teacher and a number of other things besides. Juliet, let's go back to, we, we spoke to the issue surrounding about, surrounding marriages and mistakes and who to speak to and when and so on. But let's talk about your experience. Okay. You walked down the aisle, you said, I do. You were the happiest girl in the world. And then? I was, and, and I thought that I was doing right because I did marry someone who was a Christian and um, who had promised to come to church, and we did pray together. So there were, there were a lot of things that were positive and right and good, and we had a relationship that I felt was real. 
And um, then I started noticing that things were not always what they seemed to be. What did you notice that really bothered you? Um, well, I caught... I call him John. It's not his real name, but we'll call him John because I want him to be like a real person. And um, I'm definitely not wanting to vilify him as a person. Sure. He was, you know, a human being. Um, and I noticed, though, that sometimes he wasn't completely honest. And I caught him um, in some deceit. And part of it, again, was me not doing my homework it may seem like a small thing, but when um, when I had started getting to know him, he was a smoker. And I remember saying to him, I would never marry anyone who smokes because I didn't want that in my life. And um, as we were dating, um, John quit. And I believed that. And so when we married... I thought I wasn't marrying a smoker, but I really had. He just didn't tell me. So when I caught him smoking on our honeymoon, I felt duped. I felt nervous. I felt betrayed. Did you wonder if he lied to me about this, what else is he lying to me about? I did. And, and I also blamed myself because surely I could have noticed if he was still addicted to that habit, right? How did I miss that? Was I, was I just oblivious? Did I not want to know? You know, I asked myself a lot of questions. But, so so how, that did, was, how did you miss that? I think, um, I think I ignored the gut feeling when he would need to disappear or get antsy um, when we had long car rides or whatever. You know, I, I, in hindsight, I could totally see the pattern the gum chewing, the, you know, avoiding kissing sometimes. And so I could see it looking back, but as it was happening, I just kept putting it aside and, and dismissing it, not letting myself dwell on it or think about it. So, so I really was surprised and shocked and sad. And so, yes, you, then you question the character of a person, like, if you're going to lie to me about this, then what else is there? What, what else? And I didn't know what the what else was, until six years later. Okay, walk me through those six years. So you noticed deceit, and clearly this isn't, hey, did you take that cookie from the cookie jar? This is something where you had clearly defined values yes. and preferences, and he was contravening those and keeping that from you. So that's a significant thing when you're dealing with somebody's bedrock values, and he clashed with that and kept that from you. Right. Probably important to distinguish between deceit and deceit. <laughs> what else did you notice that, when did you start to get really nervous as though, boy, maybe this marriage is in trouble? Uh, well, um, when, when money wasn't accounted for, when I, things didn't add up, stories didn't add up, um, we, we started getting into debt. He would have unexplained illness. A lot of times, a lot of accidents would happen to him. He worked in construction, and sometimes weird things would happen that, you know, the staple gun went through the hand, or, you know, just, just too many accidents. And um, 
sometimes not being where he said he was or not, not arriving home when he said he was going to. I just started feeling like suspicious of him and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then every time we ever went anywhere, like to visit relatives or uh, anywhere, vacations or whatever, he would always have the flu. He would be sick and in bed and shaking and whatever, dripping. <laughs> it was just weird, but it took a long time for me to realize what it was. And, and what was it? It was drug addiction. It was cocaine. And when you realized your husband was addicted to drugs, what did that do to you? It, it devastated me. It gutted me. I, I couldn't believe it. But in a way, I was also relieved to know what it was. Like, I knew it was something. I, I didn't know what. I thought, I, I, I thought many different things. At one point, I thought, well, maybe it's like, um, like prostitutes or something like that because the cell phone bill was like a book. It would be so thick with pages. You know, in the old days, you'd get the AT&T bill, and, it was <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't understand it. So one day, I just sat down and began calling all of those numbers and getting strange, unusual voicemails and weird music. And I just, I couldn't figure it out. I thought it was like call girls or, you know, whatever. So once I finally realized it's drugs, it's drugs, those are drug dealers. It was like horrible, but also like, oh, I get it. Like it just clicked for me. And and what was your response? You discover you, you're married to a, a drug user. Let me ask this first and then I'll ask for your response. When did you realize you were married to a drug addict? Yeah, it was basically kind of all around the same time. Okay. But he was so addicted by that time that he was like, it was kind of life or death at that point in time. And I mean, a hundred dollar cocaine habit then was a hundred dollar a day kind of, I mean, it was a lot for, for a teacher and a, <laughs> a construction worker. Sure. So, um, so he was not doing well. His physical health was, was failing. And, um, we had, uh, I had reached out to someone to a substance abuse counselor and they said, look, it's going to be the cemetery or the rehab, your choice. That's what they said to him. What did he choose? He chose the rehab. How did it go? I thought it went great. <laughs> I thought it went great. He checked in for, for 28 days and they let him out early for good behavior. And um, I'm being facetious. No, but they really did. He, he came home a little early. Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought it was wonderful and that life was starting over and we hit the reset button and he did stay clean. So things turned around. Mm-hmm. For how long? For a while. Yeah. For a while. Um, and how did you I, notice? How did you notice that things were no longer going oh, well? Oh man, I never knew. Like it was, I never knew. Even those first six years of marriage, like sometimes he was using, sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he was clean, sometimes he wasn't. I, I never knew where he was because I think he didn't want to be the slave to this either. I mean, we look at people who are chemically dependent sometimes, those of us who are not, and look at them, look down our nose at them and think, well, you know, look at you, you're just partying it up, you're having so much fun. It's not fun for them. It, it's, it's really, really hard 
to be on that that cycle, especially if you want to come off the crazy train. You just, um, I watched him suffer with with rehab and relapse. And what would he be like when he relapsed? How would that affect him emotionally and physically? Well, once he got clean and sober, he was back to normal, and we would just try to go on with life. You know, back to church, back to work, back to you know, tried to have some semblance of normalcy in our marriage. And, um, and then when he would relapse, he would just disappear. That's, that's how I would know. Like he for just, how long? He would disappear, sometimes for days, usually on a Friday because that's payday. And, um, you know, come home when the money was gone. And so after, after he, he um, came home and the money was gone... He would be depressed. He would be sorry. He would, you know, feel worthless, um, guilty, ashamed. It was hard to watch. And you know, you watch you watch someone you love and care about destroy themselves, destroy their life. Now you said you've said you like a project and you like to fix things. Yes. So did you get about fixing him? Did yes. you think, okay, we're going to fix this? How did you How did you endeavor to fix it? Oh man, we had this part of that, I guess. I, uh, uh, we can we can use the word codependent, fear-based control. So I was afraid that he was going to die. I was gonna, afraid that he was going to OD. I was afraid that someone would find out about our dirty family secret. And so I tried to control everything. I, I tried to control every penny. You, you have your boss write the paycheck to me. I'm going to control the finances, and I'll give you an allowance, just what you need. I'm, I'm going to control your comings and goings, so you have to be accountable. I would try to control him all the time. And it was, it's very exhausting to try to control another person. But that was the way that I coped, um, crack down and control. Well, then you're not a spouse. You're, you're a mother, a bad one, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and evidently it didn't even work anyway. It doesn't work. The more you try to squeeze someone, the more they run away. So how was he able to run away when you squeezed his finances and there was no money to buy cocaine? Well, I gave him a gas, a gas card, you know. Um, you, can have, you can have the Chevron card to, to get gas so you can go to your work. But I don't, I, I don't still to this day understand the drug culture and the drug world, but I really didn't then. I know a lot more now than I did then. But you can, you can steal things and pawn them. You can... Um, let other people use your gas card for cash. There, there are lots of things you can do to get, and you can deal. Your wife doesn't have to know what you're doing. Did your husband deal? Um, yes. And you discovered that at the time or later? Oh, uh, later. Later, when he accidentally left his, his driver's license at the, at the dealer's. I don't know why they have to take your license. I really don't understand. I never understood that. But anyway, <laughs> so, so, um, so we started getting robbed. Our house started getting robbed a lot, cleaned out. Insurance would let us buy the stuff again and then get robbed again. You were raised in a Christian home. You went to Christian schools. <laughs> you went to Christian college. You had a dream of being a teacher and yes. having a, a five kids in a house, I'm guessing a dog on a white picket fence. Yes, and all perfect you're, dreams. You're married to a drug addict and your home is being robbed. Yes, yes. That's not what you planned. No. What was that doing to you? No, it was tearing me up. I was, I was sick. I had ulcers. I was um, constantly stressed out. I was the controlling thing just didn't work, but I couldn't stop being controlling. You mentioned your dirty little secret or mm -hmm. your family secret. Mm -hmm. 
Why did you think about it like that? You clearly weren't comfortable sharing much of this with too many people. Why do you think that is? Um, pride and fear. When, when you have addiction, whether it's chemical dependency or pornography or even food addiction, any addiction, you, you really don't want people like looking at you and talking about you. You're afraid they're going to be condemning you, gossiping about you. Everybody else's little Facebook world looks so perfect. You know, we didn't have Facebook back when I was going through this, but um, but every you know you. Especially in church, you look around and everybody's sitting there all dressed nice and looking nice. Their family looks great. You think you're the only weird... I thought we were the only weird family with this. Do you think you were? No. We weren't. (laughs) I know that now. How many people... I'm getting ahead of myself here. How common is this in church, not just in society, in church, for families to be dealing with someone who's battling addiction issues? How common? I would venture to say every family has someone that they love or care about who's addicted to something, either chemical dependency, um, pornography, uh, food. Even, you know, we, we, we call the benign addictions like work or codependency. Um, they seem okay, but... They're not. It all ends up killing us. If you'd known this when you were younger, do you think that would have impacted the way you dealt with it, handled it, or reached out to others? If you knew you weren't actually the only one in this spiral, you'd have reached out? I wouldn't have felt so alone. I felt alone. I felt ashamed. I felt afraid. And I really didn't know. I, I never heard a sermon on addiction. I didn't know about 12-step recovery until John went to rehab for the first time. And then all of a sudden, a whole new world was opened up to me like, hey, there are groups of people that meet regularly and talk about this stuff. Like It was like, aha, wow, that's amazing. Someone actually talks about it and shares their experience and gives strength and hope to other people. So we didn't have that in my church. We, We all just hit our stuff and pretended we were fine. You think you think anything's changed much between then and now? Oh, yes. In many, in many, many faith communities do have um, 12-step recovery programs and um, people are starting to talk about it. I mean, uh, addiction, uh, drug addiction right now is rampant in our, in our country, in our culture. Like everyone's talking about it. It's not just a certain class of people. It's, it's everyone is being affected in some way. So, so yes, there are many more opportunities for people to be aware of the recovery community and um, the importance of sharing with other people what's going on in our lives and the healing that comes through vulnerability and transparency and honesty. As your husband was descending into self-destruction yes. and your marriage was starting to unravel, what was this doing to you spiritually? I was really having a spiritual awakening. I was, I was learning to trust God and to love Him and to know that He loved me. I, it makes me just emotional just thinking about how God opened my eyes to His love for me. And I grew up knowing about God's love, singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. I knew what God's Word said 
But through that experience, I learned to trust him, to trust the heart of the father and to lean on him and know that he saw me, that I was not alone, that he was with me through it. And the Lord came very close. There's um, a verse that says God is close to the brokenhearted and close to those who are crushed in spirit. And as I found myself absolutely crushed with my girlish childhood dreams, you know, devastated, I, I felt the presence of God in intangible ways. I could feel God's presence with me. And there were times when I just wanted to die. I wanted to give up. But um, the Lord did not allow that to happen. See, I can imagine a person saying, spiritually I was devastated and I felt like I was a million miles from God. And I know that happens to people. It didn't happen to you. What was going on that this experience drew you closer to God uh, this, I think, is a, is a very key point because a lot of people end up adrift and without hope. Right. What was it about you or your experience or your upbringing or your faith community that saw this experience draw you closer to God? What made the difference? I, I guess because I didn't talk to other people. I had God, and that's who I talked to. You know, I should have spoken with others, but I didn't. And so God was who I talked to, and I talked to him. Like when I was driving to school, I would have to put myself together because to be able to smile and be sweet to first grade <laughs> children, you know, you have, to, you have to get it together before you get to school. And so that was my time where I would just pour my heart out to God as I'm driving, like, Lord, I've, I've got work to do today. I need you to help me. Help me focus on loving these kids. And he would do it. Like I could just feel the peace of God come over me and I could do my work. I could do my job. I could, I could love on the kids at school. And, and when I poured my heart out to the Lord, he came and he was very real to me. And I leaned into the word of God. I wrote promises on these little um, index cards and kept them on a ring. And, and when... Satan's lies would come into my mind. Um, I would find the promise of God that was truth and say it out loud. And so God's word became my friend. It became real to me. It became tangible. Um, it wasn't just like the Bible is this overwhelming book I don't even know what to do with. But it was God talking to me and giving me strength from day to day. So where would you be now, do you think, if you didn't have God to lean on then? If I didn't have God, I would be dead. I would, I would have driven my car off a bridge or slipped my wrist or done something awful. And something kept you from that? Yes, I didn't, I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to hurt my friend, God. Yeah. Encourage someone who is struggling like you struggled. It may be with an, an addict husband or some similar thing, and they're looking at God and they're just not sure whether he's a safe place to go. Speak to that person. God is for you. He is not against you. Yeah, but you made some <laughs> destructive decisions. Yes. You didn't listen to advice. No. You didn't listen to the voice of God speaking through you. No. You found yourself in this situation which you were complicit in. I was rebellious and headstrong. Okay, but... You say to that rebellious and headstrong person, what about God? God loved me anyway, and God loves you anyway. And his heart toward us is good. And it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I learned that 
And I believe that you're not ever alone. We are never alone. And God is with us in the trenches. He's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with us when our spouse is using drugs. He's with us when our child's health is failing. He's with us when we want to drive our car off a bridge. And sometimes we just have to be still and say, God, where are you? And listen. And he says, I'm right here. I'm here and I got you. And he carries us. He carried me through it. And he brought me out on the other side with such, such an amazing ending to my story. And the ending is the beginning. Um, he gave me a new life. He gave me hope. And he redeemed every dream I thought was lost. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. He's always there. And he's always for you. More of my conversation with Juliet von Heerden in just a moment. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the Reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written exists because of the kindness of people just like you. To support this international life-changing ministry, please call us now at 800-253-3000. You can send your tax-deductible gift to the address on your screen, or you can visit us online at itiswritten.com. Thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. Our number again is 800 800- 253-3000, or you could visit us online at itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Juliet van Heerden. A moment ago, Juliet, things were unraveling. Things unraveled, things got dark, but you knew God was with you. Yes. Okay, we want to bring this to the end of the story, which as you said a moment ago, is the beginning of the story. Yes. Your husband is drug addicted, he's lying, he's sick, he's in and out of rehab, your home has been robbed, you were divorced. How'd that happen? How do you finally get to the point or how did circumstances bring you to the place where this is over and it's not getting better? Um, well, well, John just said to me, I am tired of living the double life. I don't want to be the Christian husband that you want me to be. I want to drink what I want, smoke what I want, and watch what I want, snort what I want. And I want to be with this other woman who doesn't make me feel guilty for the things that I want to do. And so he just verbalized that he was done with my dream, and he wanted to live his dream, which didn't include me. So... Um, Unfortunately, his dream led him to a 12-year prison sentence. 
And I was able to walk away feeling relieved. I wanted to ask you about that. When he says, I'm done, mm-hmm. was there pain by that stage? You said relief. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as painful as if he'd said that a number of years earlier. Right. At that point, it was, it was a relief. I just felt like I had done my absolute best and given it everything that I could possibly do. But a person is free to make their own choices. You may even have felt like a failure because after all, divorce was never going to happen. Right. You had the plan, the five kids and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. But you didn't feel like a failure, which is, which is interesting and I think very, very healthy. Offer a word of encouragement to somebody who might be in the situation that you were in then and they feel like, if I don't hang in here to the grim death, then somehow I've let God down. How do you know, how do you know when you've done your best and it's time to let go? Well, I think, I think the Lord lets us know. And sometimes we hang on beyond the point where God has released us. And God, it is not God's desire for anyone to be in an abusive situation. And I had a very difficult time using the word abuse to describe um, my marriage. But as I look back, I can say I was in an abusive marriage. I was being financially abused. I was being emotionally neglected, verbally abused. And, and so as I look at that, I know that's not God's will and, that, and that's not God's plan for us. We need to be safe. And sometimes God makes provision for, for people. Um, he says he hates divorce. Yes, he does because it's painful and devastating, but there is provision. There are, t- there are times when it's a relief. So you picked up the pieces. How hard yes. was that? I had friends that let me live in their pool house for a year and a half, get myself uh, on my feet again financially because drug addiction, is it can be very expensive. Any Some of these addictions like gambling and these things, it can just devastate you financially. But my friends were so wonderful. They said, do not pay us a penny. You save every cent. And then when you're ready, you can take your money and go put yourself a down payment on a house. And it really helped me. And they helped me get a vehicle that was safe. And so I I had people surrounding me in my life who supported me. And I know what it feels like to feel like you have nothing. Even as a professional with a degree, I had nothing. <laughs> and, and what I find interesting is back up a few years and yes. you were worried that someone might learn your dirty little secret. Yes. Now, years later, yes. the secret's out and yet people embraced They you. embraced me and they loved me and they loved John through it too. I mean, once we started sharing, we found that people embraced us and loved us through it. And it was beautiful to just be like, oh, I don't have to carry this burden of a secret anymore. So I, I would encourage people, please share, find a safe place and share with somebody. Don't hold it. You had a dream. It was a wonderful dream. It was a realistic dream. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to be married. I'm not going to get divorced like my family experienced along the way. I'm going to have all these wonderful children. Nothing. Marriage, divorce, your dream didn't work out, except you said, God has given you everything you ever dreamed about. So fast forward, and what did God do for you? How did he restore what the locusts ate? 
Well, I had to I had to be willing to go where he said to go. And I was stuck in a small town and I could have stayed at the same school and retired and and probably just been alone. And I could have been bitter and hardened against men, which is sometimes the temptation that we have. But I just asked the Lord, please keep me soft hearted. Keep me open. And um, I had an opportunity to move from my small town where really wasn't a lot going on. Um, and I, I, took the, I took advantage of it. And I moved to a new community and I went back to school for my master's degree. And um, it was there that someone I knew came to me and said, I know a man, a really nice man, and I think that he would be a good fit for you. I was scared. <laughs> I yeah, was, I want to ask you about I was that. Terrified. How, what, how big a challenge was it to say, "I'll dip my toe in the pond again"? I, I said no. They said, "Can I, could I, could I have your phone number? Can I share your phone number with him?" And I said, "No, <laughs> no, you can't." And so they came back to me the next day. It was a girl she, in my class. She came back to me the next day with her her laptop open with a picture of, him. <laughs> and she said, "He's a really nice man, and he's a pastor, and he's South African, and he's really handsome." too and she's showing me this picture and so I looked and I was like okay well don't give him my phone number but you could give him my email address <laughs> and so she did that and uh, he sent me an email and we started a communication and I wonder if this time around whether your background checks were a little more thorough did you did oh you, yes oh yes <laughs> you you did the things you didn't do first I time did my homework I did my research I I got to know him um, friends and um, longtime, longtime friends and family, and I I remember walking. It was Thanksgiving, uh, taking a walk after that too too big of dinner <laughs> with his sister, and she said to me, "You know, I really like you, and I would like to love you, and I would love it if you were my sister. But I'm going to give you some advice. Will you listen to me?" And I had learned my lesson about listening to advice, and I said yes. She you were said, all ears this time. Yeah, she said to me. Do not chase my brother. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, they chase him. And every time they chase him, he runs. <laughs> and so he, he had never been married. He was 50 and he had never been married. And so she said, do not chase him. And I said, okay, I will not chase him. And I didn't. That was risky. <laughs> so did he chase you? Yes. Oh, well done. It worked out. It was a pretty risky strategy there, but I guess you took, <laughs> you took the advice this time and you learned that uh, good advice is worth taking. I took it. And his family loved him. You know, everybody had great, great things to say. And I could see that he had long time, long time relationships. And I knew there wasn't a history with chemical dependency, which I would have been like, no, not, no, thank you, never again. Um, so yes, I did my homework and I didn't chase him. I listened to the council and, um, and he pursued me. And, um, you know, it, it took two years before we were married, but we were married and um, it's beautiful. I've been Amazing. married eight and a half years and it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's, it's a, I feel like I'm, I'm married and I didn't know. I actually wasn't married. I mean, I was married on paper, but I did not have an intimate emotional relationship with my first husband because when someone is chemically dependent or, or addicted in that kind of way, that's what they're married to. They're not married to you. We didn't have, we didn't have anything close to what I have now. And I'm sad. I'm sad John didn't get to experience that 
And I'm sad for the me I was because I thought I was married and I knew what it was all about. I didn't know anything. Along the way, you wrote a book. Yes. Same dress, different day. Yes. Why did you write the book? Believe me, I didn't want to. Um, for, for, for doing public speaking now and for being a teacher, I'm actually an introvert and I'm a very private person. And that's why I kept my mouth closed for so long about things. I did not want to write this book. I am a writer. I love to write. But I was, you know, journaling and writing for myself, never thinking I would tell my story to other people. But the Holy Spirit just kept on me about this, that, that you need to share this story because it will bring hope to others. And as a pastor's wife, I started hearing the stories of people in church who are suffering, families that are suffering with the same kind of problems that I experienced. And I really had so much compassion for them. And, and a few people said to me, you need to share your story. You need to write your story. You need to write your story. And I kept putting it off. And I knew it, it would be difficult because I was happy. I was living the happily ever after. Who wants to go back? and think about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And in order to write well, you need to relive it in your mind. But um, Andre, my husband, he, he gave me permission to do it. He sent me, it was very gracious of him as a man. He gave me permission to go back and to relive that pain and to write about John and to, um, to share my story. And it took me about three years from start to finish um, because it was hard. I would write a bit, and then I'd take a long break. But it was published in 2015, and the responses from readers has been, it hurts me so much to hear what they have to say. They say to me, you're telling my story. You're, you're, you lived what I'm going through. One woman, um, she was actually from New Zealand, she wrote to me and she said, my 12-year-old daughter and I just finished her book, and we cried together because this is our life. And, um, but you give us so much hope and, and the women share that they have hope. They believe that God can heal. But the people in my book want to know about John because he represents their loved one. Um, the people who read my book, I should say, they, they want to know what happened. And so they ask me, you know, is he okay? Did he make it? And I can honestly say, I don't know. I don't know if he's clean and sober. I don't know if he made it. But I was able to contact him via a third party and ask his permission to share and to tell. And um, he was going to write the epilogue to give hope to the reader. It's not in the book, but I believe there's still hope for John and there's hope for the loved one of, of anybody who loves, loves a chemically dependent person. Give some advice to that, to that woman especially, who doesn't have to be a woman. Mm -hmm who's in a relationship that's just spiraling downwards, nothing he or she can do about it. There's addictions or whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. Where should they go? Who should they speak to? First, God. Yes. Always God. Always God first. But who else? Because we both know there's more going on behind closed doors than we even realize. Mm -hmm. There's so much. And so many people are suffering in silence. And sometimes... They're suffering in silence. Yes. And God doesn't want that. No. Where can a person go? No. And, and Dr. Larry Crabb says healing takes place in community. So we need to find a community of people where we feel safe and who, where we're not alone in our suffering. Our suffering is, sorrow is divided. Um, and I would, I would suggest finding a local um, Christ-centered recovery 
um, group, Recovery Community. Al-Anon is a wonderful resource. Um, find a group that meets regularly for codependence. There's Codependence Anonymous, where, and those, that's those of us who, who get caught in the cycle of rescuing that loved one. Um, not everyone can afford counseling, professional counseling. It's a wonderful resource if you can. But if you can't, there are people um, who meet regularly and talk and share and, um, and be a reader. Um, learn about addiction, learn about boundaries, learn about codependency, find out um, about yourself and what you can do, and then find a safe place where you can share and, and grow and heal. There is hope. Your husband is a pastor. You're very yes. involved in ministry yes. now. You're on the front lines of ministry, your own public personal ministry and church community ministry. How important is the role of the church family in assisting people who are struggling like this? And are churches doing enough? And knowing your answer, what more could congregations do, could churches do to help people who are, who are where you were? The way that our world is today, families are not close together. People are spread out. We're, I, I was away from my, my parents, my grandparents, my extended family. So church is extremely important. The church family is vital because sometimes that is the family that we have. And we need people that, that can wrap their arms around us physically and hug us and hold us while we cry and who can look into our eyes and, and say, I love you. I'm sorry you're hurting. But if we don't share with them that we're hurting and they don't have the tools in their tool belt to deal with what we're going through, it doesn't work. Churches need to become safe healing places for people so that um, they can be healthy and reach out to the community uh, outside the church and, and, and really help the people around us in our neighborhoods, in our communities who are just drowning in addiction. But it starts, it starts within the church, recognizing, hey, this is in our pews. This is among us. And so I advocate for recovery um, in, in churches. Julia, thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, Juliet Van Heerden. And this has been our conversation. See you next time.